I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly, and today on The Detail, Black Lives Matter, we have a special insight into the community where George Floyd grew up. Say his name. George Floyd. Say his name. While the protests in mayhem gripped the US for the ninth day over his killing, a small crowd gathered in a park in Third Ward neighbourhood in Houston, where he lived before moving to Minneapolis. And so I know what hate can do to your heart. So I say that to my African-American brothers and sisters and to to everyone outside the race, I say, would you please bear with us in this moment? Would you give us time to heal and grieve? They are members of the Restoration Community Church in Third Ward, where George Floyd went back to after serving four years in prison for aggravated robbery. He wanted to help improve the lives of the people in his community. David Hill is the church pastor and knows the family. I spoke to him before the vigil about the protests. I've seen rioting, we've seen outrage, we've seen, but nothing like this. In my lifetime, this is as bad as it's been. There are a couple of things that work. I think we were already in a very difficult state because of the virus. I don't want us to be looked at as rioters or looters. We're protesting passionately. We're passionate people. No justice! No peace! I think there was a lot of pent-up energy. If you don't speak up, then everything's just going to be silent. There's going to be no justice. Exactly. There has to be justice for all the people that die with this police brutality. And then you have an incident like this. And again, I go back to the fact that The video image was something like not before. The evilness of it. Remember, one officer said he doesn't have a post. Maybe we should turn him over on his side. However, Officer Shervin said, no, we're going to keep him in that position. The intentionality of it. And equally important is the fact that those two knees in his back For not one minute, not two minutes, not three minutes, not four minutes, not five minutes, not six minutes, not seven minutes, not eight minutes, but almost nine minutes. I think allow people to see this differently than how they've seen it before. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. George Floyd begged for air. I think those things have really come together and made this situation different. And what about the politics as well? Is your congregation frustrated by the leadership? There's frustration definitely with the leadership, but it's really with the leadership on both parties, to be honest with you, because these things have been happening under Republican administration and Democratic administration. Both sides have not been able to address this issue that has plagued the black community, because this is not a new issue. It's been around for a long time. Uh, And and I think people have really reached a breaking point uh, that you cannot treat black men, black people in this way. People here know that uh, if you have a run-in with a police officer, it can end deadly for you. Um, And so we have to talk to, I have a son, I have a son and three daughters, and I have to talk to my son and I had to train him. Like, if you have an encounter with a police officer, here's what you do. Here's how you conduct yourself. Um, And because if you make a false move or if you do anything 
abnormal, it could cost you your life. And so I had to talk to my son about that. Um, I had to talk to my daughters about that. And so that's a very real thing in the black community. You could be from a very low-income area, and you can even have reached uh, a level of society where you are privileged, but you can co still come in contact with the same kind of experience um, being black. And I do think it's a little harsher, a little rougher for black men. And, David, was it like this for you when you were growing up? You know, honestly, I don't remember it being having the same level of fear as I've seen escalate over the last 20, 10 to 20 years. It was still there. We knew that we had to watch ourselves around the police, and we didn't want any kind of misunderstanding or every black young man knows, and I knew this then, if you get pulled over, you keep your hands where they can see them. You speak in a way that puts them at ease. Because uh, I have, you know, I've had a situation where I had multiple police guns drawn on me. Why was that? Uh, what happened? I, we were in a rental vehicle. Uh, we were picking up someone late at night from work, a roommate of ours. In Houston? And in Houston, in this very community that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, and the rental car... I guess the people that had headed before us returned it late. So the rental car people had reported it stolen, but they never took the tag off when we rented the car. So when the officers saw that there were four black men driving this rental car at a certain time at night, we were just driving home and we stopped at a stop sign and out of the blue, seven police cars rolled up on us there were guns in the window, guns in, in the driver's window, and we were totally innocent. It was a total misunderstanding, but I do know that because it was four black young men driving this vehicle, they had to re they responded with such force. Wow. And in that moment, if I really felt like if we had accidentally dropped something, reached for something, nervously responded in a way any one of us could have been shot in that moment. I was a younger, much younger man then. But I've even had, even in the last year or two, I've, I've been pulled over two houses from my house because they're looking for a suspect that drives a car like mine. But again, when they pull me over, officers come out with their guns, hands on their guns, uh, very nervous, and once I got to speak with them, they realized I wasn't who they were looking for. But it's those moments until you get to speak that something can go wrong. You know, if, if in between that time, it, I move wrong, you do something wrong that makes a cop nervous. And I think that's what black people are saying is like, don't be afraid of us in a way that makes you feel um, like you have to use excessive force against us. Hmm. But I will say this, you know, we do have responsibility to be fair. We do have a responsibility in our community because if you look at the statistics, African-American men are involved in way too much criminal behavior that leads to violence. And I do understand that that plays a role in it as well, but it does not give way to what we see. This is what
Why do you think it has escalated in the last 10 to 15 years? It's a very complicated answer. I think inside the community, I think we've seen the deterioration and the destruction of the black family structure, which has led to young, more young men involved in criminal activity and behavior. And so you see an increase in interaction with the police. I think that's part of it. I think another part of it, I think the police who patrol these communities, they don't have much training or experience with relationships with people from these communities. So if you're a white officer patrolling a black community, most of the times they don't have very many black relationships or very many community-based relationships that they can draw on as they engage people of that community. So they may only get their black experience from movies or what they see on the news or what they heard in reports. And so that gives them a false identity of who and what the people are that they're policing. So I think it's a twofold deal. Mm. I think there's issues within these communities and then there's issues within the, those who are patrolling these communities. And as you say, I mean, this has been going on for generations, though, hasn't it? it so has. have race relations deteriorated over time? You know, it's, again, a very tricky question because in some ways this country has made tremendous progress in race relations. I don't have very many racial incidents in my life as I go about my daily business. Are there some? Yes. But nothing on a grand scale that makes me feel like this country is worse off than it's ever been. But when it comes to policing these communities, then I think you're talking about this country. You see some throwback to how this thing used to be, where you start to say, man, we haven't made much progress. But as a, as a nation, I feel like we've made tremendous progress. As you see, I don't know if you've seen the protests here, there are just as many white Americans protesting as there are black Americans. Yes. You know, if you're thinking back to the black civil rights protests. Right. You had to really twist arms and, and you had to really beg whites to come and be a part of that movement. You know, today, just as many white people I know are offended and hurt and broken about this situation. There's no one. I've not met anyone. I've not seen anyone who defends the police and tries to make... Uh, a case for the police. Everybody has condemned. Everybody has said this is wrong. No justice! No peace! No justice! No peace! I want us to treat black lives as our own on a daily basis. In the classroom, out of the classroom. I want it in the streets. I want it when somebody is pulled over. And nobody in America wants to be a racist. It's the worst thing you could be called. Mm-hmm. But I think it's the, the, the area where it seems to be stunning or has, re- has, has kind of backtracked, is in this policing of these communities. So are you that saying is, that the police brutality that has been there, it was so evident back then in the days of the civil rights protests, is that as bad as it's ever been? Yeah, I, I don't know if I'd say it's as bad as it's ever been, but I will say it's, a, it's still a problem. Uh, because, if you know, if you go back to my parents and grandparents, and, and I'll say this, this is what made the George Floyd situation 
so uh, taking this thing to the next level is because when my grandparents or parents were coming up, like the whites could do what you saw happen to George Floyd and did do what you saw happen to George Floyd all the time without any recourse. They could beat you to death and nobody would even know. They could take you to jail and you would never be seen from again. That's how it used to be in the 50s and the 60s. And so certainly it's not like that anymore. Um, but there is still a level of brutality that is used on African-American men that you don't see when it comes to other people in our society. Barack Obama, he, he's called for making this moment a real turning point to bring about real change. Do you think this could be a, a watershed moment? Could this be a turning point? I think it already is. I but think it how? Is. Because it seems, in a lot of ways, it seems quite hopeless. And, and that's the very thing that I ministered on this Sunday, is that we can never... Dr. King had a statement that he said, sometimes you have to accept finite disappointment, but you can never give up infinite hope. You have to, and this is what I would tell in my church and my parishioners, is that we grieve, we, we, we anger, we, we march for justice. You know, I've been doing this 30 years. I have a stack of young men that I've seen buried. And not all of them were due to police violence. Some of them were shot and killed. Most of them were shot and killed by other black men. And so the death and destruction that has happened in these communities has happened way too long. And I think this is a watershed moment, and I hope not just for police brutality, but the, for all the violence on, on black men. But I do think we have to give a message of hope that we can begin to build a nation and a society and a culture that we all dream about and aspire to be. And, I, and the reason I say it's possible is because I've had more white pastors and ministers and people of society reach out to me than I ever had in my life. Well, that's amazing. But how do you do that? I mean, what do all these young black men think? Do they, do they feel hope? They want to know how. How do things change? I think it happens on a few different levels. I think everyone has to take a deep look at themselves first. Because you can only expect the change outside of you to the level that you're willing to make change in yourself. What would you like to see done in terms of dealing with police brutality? How does that change? Yeah, I think, one, these, these, these police forces have to have better standards. Uh, you cannot have officers who have horrible records, like the gentleman who was involved in this case, when you look at his record, it was clear that he was a bad officer. He had numerous complaints, numerous incidents. And for whatever reason, there were, there were rules or regulations that made it difficult for him to be either removed from the force or there was a culture that did not feel that they had to identify him and move him off. And I think 
you do have to look at these. These police forces do need to be reviewed, and you do have to get rid of these officers. The place where George Floyd grew up is poor and dangerous, but 50 years ago, it was a middle-class neighbourhood. Our neighbourhood, from 2012 to 2018, we led the city of Houston in homicide. And so it was the most violent neighbourhood in, in Houston between those years, 2012 to 2018. Why did it go from being a middle-class community to poor community, effectively? Yeah. A big part of it was the drug epidemic in the 80s and 90s. Uh, in America, in the 80s and 90s, we had the crack epidemic. It caused extreme violence, uh, extreme addictions, uh, and it caused a lot of African-American men to go to prison mm. um, because of the laws that were instituted behind the sale of that drug. Well, during that time, when these families, when it was a middle-class neighborhood, they were sending their kids to college and universities, but those kids did not come back to this community. And so after that happens a few generations, our neighborhoods kind of became a place that was known for crime, uh, danger, poor schools, cheap housing. And so it became a place that people did not want to be. But if you think the violence and brutality and racism happens only in poor, dangerous neighbourhoods, you're wrong. I was walking in my neighbourhood. One minute I saw this home security car drive by me and I thought nothing of it. Three minutes later, the car had clearly driven around the corner and drove by me again. By the third time, I was like, okay, this is really strange. And then it was either the fourth or the fifth time they drove only about a block away from me before making a U-turn to drive by me again, as if, oh, now I need to see her face so I I can recognize her. At which point I looked the driver in the eye as if to say, I see you and I know what you're doing. Kim Thompson herself says she is a black woman of great privilege, an Ivy League educated woman, a lawyer who, in her own words, lives in a fancy house in a beautiful neighbourhood and drives a nice car. When she posted her own experiences on social media after George Floyd's killing, more than a million viewed it and tens of thousands responded. She's had people cross the street if she's walking behind them. Women move their purses to their far shoulders when she gets in an elevator. And she's been stopped by police for, in her words, driving while black. I was driving with my daughter, um, and so I sort of slowed down to look at a sign to make sure I was on the right road. And then I kept on driving, and then this cop turned on their lights and pulled me over. I was driving a brand-new Cadillac, and I just thought, what, what on earth is going on? And so when I, when I asked, it was like there was no good reason for me to have been stopped. It was a, what we call, DWB, driving while black. And other things have happened to you. I mean, get, you know, going out for a, a walk and people crossing the street when they see you. Yes, if I'm walking home from the BART station and it's dusk, it's not dark yet, but it's, you know, the sun is setting uh, and there's a white woman walking in front of me. And this has happened a few times. Um, I'll see her walking, and then I'll see her kind of take a look over her shoulder and see me. And then I'll see her, even if she's wearing heels, cross the street and start almost running up the street. 
She'll be a block ahead of me now. And then I'll see her cross the street again. Clearly, she wanted to be on the same side of the street as me, but she didn't want to be that close. She wanted to be ahead of me. Frankly, I've never written anything like what I wrote uh, on LinkedIn or on Facebook. Right now, it's already got like a million views. And I've never done that before, but I felt like I've reached the point of I need to tell people that this has just got to stop and something needs to change. As I, I said in the postings, I'm one of the most fortunate black women in this country. And if I've had it, everybody who has had less of the the good fortune and blessings that I've had must have had it as well. You do a lot of community work with African-American children and Hispanic children in Oakland. What would make a difference for them? Well, frankly, I think one of the things that, and you know, my personal opinion is one of the things that needs to change is the leadership of this country. The president of this country is encouraging racism, encouraging microaggressions, encouraging people to fight against each other, that's got to change. Then I think we need to really think about how can we level the playing field with respect to education and with respect to resources. Ultimately, a, a large part of it starts with educating our kids, educating them to not turn into racist idiots, um, but also providing education to African-American and Latino kids so that everybody has an equal, truly equal opportunity to succeed. One of the other areas that I think we need to think about is really fundamentally changing the way police are trained. There are many, many, many good police officers, but there's something in the culture if Time and time and time and time again, African-American men are shot first and questions asked later, but white men who can go in, a white man who goes into a church and shoots and kills nine black parishioners gets arrested without incident, taken to a fast food restaurant to enjoy a meal before being taken into the station. Some police officers think that it's okay to do that or it's okay to lean on the neck of a man who is accused, not proven, but accused to have possibly used a counterfeit $20 bill and kill him with your knee. That's not okay. And I've heard of that story happening to other black men not so long ago. I have never heard of that story happening to a white man or a white woman. And so I want you all to remember the next time you're watching the evening news and you hear so-and-so was shot and murdered on this street, on that block, I want you to grieve in your heart just like we're grieving for George Floyd. I'm a young black man doing all that I can. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile phone every weekday from any podcast platform. If you're using Apple, give us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell and Jesse Chang. Thanks to Pastor David Hill and Kim Thompson. I just want to leave.
And you're listening to 12-year-old Kedron Bryant, whose protest song, I Just Want to Live, has gone viral. Mā te wā. I just want to live. I just want to live. 